very much, Mel, for that marvellous bluegrass introduction. You're all very welcome to Trademark Belfast Latest Podcast. Next week, Mel's going to do on his banjo some heavy dub reggae for us. I don't know how he's going to get on with that, but he's going to make his best efforts. Um, unfortunately, we're only joined today by M- uh, Mel Corrie, M. Phil, and myself, Stefan the Newline. Sean Byers is not with us today. He was um, being a very naughty boy and was caught drinking cans in the park, breaking lockdown restrictions. So he's been arrested by Her Majesty's Finest and he's doing a bit of time. Uh, might sharpen him up a bit, Mel. Yeah, I think he might have been caught short and, um, you know, was, was, was spied by a police officer. So, and he has form in that regard. So he could do we'll time. We better not say any more about, Paul, about uh, Sean's uh, criminal past. Right, listen, last time on our Worker's Guide to Historical Capitalism, we had a, a good run through the late 1960s and 70s, Mel. We got right up to the, um, Chile, the Chilean experiment, as the Chicago boys called it, and um, the assassination, the murder of, or whatever it was, the, the, certainly the getting rid of Allende and his um, socialist government, and how that led then in turn to the birth, I suppose, of a new kind of um, direction for capitalism, uh, which we now know or now give the term neoliberalism to. Um, or Thatcherism, or Reaganomics, or bailout conditions, or whatever you want to call it. But um, And we kind of got through some of that stuff, some of the core characteristics of Thatcherism, as we understand them, as, as, as children of that generation. And we finished really talking about um, that central to uh, the neoliberal period was the attack on labour, um, the enemy within a Thatcher called the miners. And we looked at some of the brutal forms of anti-trade union legislation that uh, are still extant, of course, and haven't been removed by any subsequent governments, including the Labour government. You know, restricted time off for trade union rates, yeah. imposition of postal ballots. Yeah, there was, there was. I think, in the 18 years of Thatcher's, um, um, well, the Conservative government at that particular time, because, of course, she, she was torfed out a couple of years before it ended, uh, there were 17 pieces of anti-trade union legislation. And then you had 18 years of a Blairite Labour government, which didn't um, remove one of those attacks on trade unions. Um, but of course, it was a concerted effort, wasn't it? Because the um, the welfare compromise had broken down. Uh, you, you know, the, the you know, Paul Volcker's comment about... Um, uh, you know, living standards must decline, and of course, central to that was attacking trade unions, making sure the trade unions um, had very little to no voice in the workplace. But it wasn't just, money. but it wasn't just anti-trade union legislation, was it? I mean, trade unions come under attack in a number of different ways, I mean, yeah. and it shows yeah. you that the attacks were such that um, you, in order for capitalism to re-establish its power and for a reconstitution of a certain kind of capitalist power. They had really had to destroy and break the back of the trade unions. And one of the other tactics, of course, um, was union busting. Yeah. Well, if, well, first of all, of course, they had, what they had to do was take on the most, the most, um, the hardest nuts in the trade union movement. So in America, your your um, um, air traffic controllers, and in Britain, the miners' strike, and the print unions, and all of that. And then to make sure when, when the back was broke of the trade union movement that it can never get back on its feet. It was part of that Washington consensus that emerges um, after Chile to you know, actively engage in union busting techniques or um, you know, to, to help uh, capital and to help companies um, take part in union avoidance is a polite way of, of um, describing it. And it's led to a whole market in um, 
particularly among American law firms, where it started first. Um, you know, you remember the the uh, the companies like Adams, Nash, Haskell, and Sheridan, um, who had whole sections on their website about union avoidance. Um, employers giving advice to employers about how they can avoid unions, how they can avoid um, workers coming together, and all that sort of stuff. One of the the quotes I remember from their website was. Uh, Untreated union organizing is not like good red wine. It doesn't get better with age. And then they go on to um, say things like, you know, um, uh, the, the results of trade union organizing result in 32.4% increase in your labor costs once you become a unionized company. Now for us, and of course, research has, has borne that fact out that um, unionized workers are about 30% better paid than non-union workers. Um, so you turn that thing on its on its head, and that's what it says. If you unionized, you're about 30% better paid than and we know, of, And we know, of course, and we know, of course, that these union busting firms have been very active in Britain and Ireland since the early noughties, oh, 2001, 2002. I won't mention the law firm, but they're a major law firm in Britain who um, began their union avoidance seminars, taking seminars around to businesses and employers, including major employers in Britain and Ireland. Like, you know, so they're, they're at their work here, aren't they? Yeah, they've, they've been at it from, for quite some time. I mean, this I, I would imagine this goes right back before the previous crash. Um, and they certainly it's come to, to our attention um, in the run-up to the last crash, um, where the TUC were, were warning uh, British unions about it at that time. Um, and, of course, it's not just um, about... You know, smashing the unions. Um, There's other more um, devious techniques that they use, and you know, things like human resource management. Yeah, HR is a classic, isn't it? Because HR sounds, sounds scientific and it sounds kind of objective and it sounds as if it's kind of impartial. But I mean, the values of human resource management are anti-labour, individualistic, and pro-capital. And most of the big companies in America, large companies, are anti-union or non-union. Um, and it's kind of become big business now. When you when you go to do your HR degree, I mean, you study kind of an ideology of HR, and the ideology of HR is it's called, I mean, it has its own name, unitarism. And it's that bollocks you'll have heard from David Cameron during the crisis or during austerity years about we're all in this together. And and that's kind of they view, if you like, a, a, an organisation as a, as an integrated and harmonious system. You know, so if it's not integrated, if it's not harmonious, then you know, if there's conflict in the organisation, well, it must be caused by deviants, agitators, or troublemakers. For that, you can read trade unionists, trade union organisers. Um, and over the years, Mel, we've heard hilarious stories, fucking ridiculous stories, about you know employers' attempts to create internal cultures of you know one team rather than two teams. I mean, I know which team I'm on. I'm in the team of fucking labour, and then there's another team, and that's capital. That's the employer. But they try to smooth away those huge contradictions, don't they? With the, with these dopey yeah. internal cultural games. Yeah, well, even even the word unitarism and human resource management in itself is it's it's um, the the real intent is is clouded in those words because they're non-threatening words. They really they really mask what they're what, what they're really about, and they're very clever. Um, and some of the things that they they introduce in workplaces, you know, like um, uh, huddles in the morning before workers start work, or groups of workers get round, you know, almost like an American football. Um, at team talk and criticize each other's performance. So you really let me down yesterday because you know you were very slow stacking the shelves and 
uh, when you know, somebody said, oh, I'm really sorry, I'll try and do better today. Um, to the point where, it, you know, we, you have rewards on the, the company notice boards, employee of the month. Or as we and, call them, what do we call them? Uh, well, you call them wankers of the month. Can I, I would certainly <laughs> use language like that. Um, well, a bootlicker of the month, is that not better? I mean, the idea of a, a non-financial reward for selling your labour in the workplace is clearly fucking ridiculous. And yet it's amazing how many people buy into this nonsense. Well, th this is it. And that's why it's very clever. And the language used is very clever. Because a lot of, in a lot of instances, workers fall over themselves to take part in this. Um, it's like they have a stake in the company um, that their voice is being heard. And uh, what it does is over a period of time, it changes the culture of that organization um, away from, uh, from us and them, from um, the union looking after the workforce, from increased democracy to uh, complete control of workers. Yeah, that, that kind of organizational culture you refer to, I mean, it's really important. It helps you understand not just organizations, but how those organizations are also rooted in capitalist society and a market society. Because that idea of organizational culture is it's basically that set of beliefs and norms you know, and symbols and events that kind of represents that character of that particular organization. But those norms and values are ones in which they say there's no labor, there's no us and them, there's no two teams here, there's one team. As if you selling your labor to them doesn't really exist and you're actually the shareholder, that you're the owner. And of course, that's classic hegemony. That's how hegemony works. That's how yeah. capitalism creates these, these common sense ideas that make us believe there's nothing wrong with this system. Yeah, well, they even try to get rid of the word worker. Um, you know, as if as if people don't don't sell their labour. We've all got stake in this business. We're all colleagues, um, and a real sort of um, wretched at the mention of the word worker. You know, it's it's it, and that becomes common sense as well to people. But I've even found that word appear in the voices and the mouths of trade unionists who refer to members as colleagues within the organisation. And I remember Joe Law when we were doing some work with a large company, Northern Ireland's largest private sector employer. And they were going, Joe, you know, um, can you please stop working, uh, referring to everyone in here as a, co as, as a worker? And can you please use the term colleague? And Joe went, no, I fucking won't use the word colleague. I'm going to use the word worker because they're workers. And they hated the fact that he was breaking, if you like, or he was offering a counter-hegemonic interpretation of what, you know, what those relationships were, those social relationships in the workplace were. But it's really important for them to, to, in, to I suppose, to promote that idea of unitarism and, and one-teamism because... That's how class domination works. It gets you yeah. to vote for and to support interests that clearly aren't your own. And it's really been exposed in the um, in the current uh, crisis, the COVID crisis has exposed that because of people not having access to personal protective equipment, people being forced to go into workplaces that are not safe. All of a sudden, everybody now has a sense um, that the um, the mask is slipping. And that we are all workers, and, and that phrase, you know, people are being essential workers, you know, yeah. is on the minds yeah. of everybody now, you know. So, the 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 whole the game's up for human resource management. Let's hope so. Um, so that, that we briefly looked at those those attacks on on labour, and it wasn't just happening in Britain and Ireland, of course. In Ireland, of course, in Britain, you might argue that Thatcher shot the trade unions in the foot. In Ireland, we took a double barrel shotgun and shot ourselves in the feet by engaging in social partnership. Um, which is another way, of course, to emasculate and to demilitar, you know, kind of make less militant the trade union movement. If anyone's interested in that debate about social partnership, by the way, I think it's on our number two podcast when we or number three podcast when we talk with Dave Gibney of Mandate the Union about um, social partnership in Ireland. What was the overall Mel, the overall impact of all of these various techniques: human resources, union busting, 
anti-trade union legislation. What was the result of all of that? Well, well you could say there's been a collapse in, in trade union density across across the UK and Ireland, but particularly in Ireland, um, we're below 25% now, listen. Yeah, but about 25%. And that's those figures depend on unions being honest with their um, with, with the members that they have. And there would be some suspicion that unions tend to inflate the number of members that they have. And it could be the, the real figure could be actually worse. But it's a complete collapse in, in trade union membership. Yeah, I think um, the figures in Ireland are it's basically a 50% collapse in membership since the early 1990s. Yeah. yeah. And of course, well, you know, if trade unions collapse, then industrial action collapses. Uh, it's not just in Ireland and Britain, it's right across the industrialised world. And how important is industrial action, though? What does it tell you? If strike activity across the world has collapsed in terms of days lost to strike action, and it has in, in large part of the globe, from Australia to Canada to South America to the United States, what does that um, what does that say about the balance of power? Well, the balance of power shifts, and it has shifted, and of course that was the intention right from the start. Um, that uh, whether it's anti-trade union legislation, human resource management, the end result is to emasculate trade unions and to reshape the workplace. Yeah, that's the important bit, isn't so it? We haven't, it, talked, it? we haven't really talked about that bit yet. That, that if you attack unions, there's a there's a reason for attacking unions. It's not just for fun. The reason you attack labour is because you want to reorganise work. And we've seen a massive reorganisation, a restructuring of the, of, of the world of work over the last 30 years now. So what, what's kind of happened there in terms of how our work lives have changed? Well, when you probably, you're, you're a bit younger than me, but not by much. Like So I'm imagining <laughs> that um, you, you were so... That, you keep grasping onto that straw. Yeah, well, you, you know, you, you were probably told that if you work hard and do your homework, that you'll get a good job where you'll work five days a week um, and you'll get decent money for it. And you'll probably, it'll probably be a unionized job. You'll probably have overtime rates. You'll probably have good holidays and a pension. And for a lot of people, that was the, the world of work. And there was, there was nothing else. You either had a job or you didn't. Um, and part of that restructuring of labor has undermined that, that, that whole um, um, notion of work when you started to see fixed term contracts being brought in, started in, in engineering and shipbuilding, for example, whenever, you know, why would you have a whole team of workers that um, are employed and, and taking money from the company when there's no work for them because they're waiting on the produce coming from the team that's doing it before. So with riveters working on a ship, why would you employ painters when there's nothing to paint? Bring them in, pay them off, bring them in on fixed term contracts, pay them off when they're finished. That started to, to come in as a cost cutting measure, as a, as a way it was, it was snuck in sometimes with union uh, cooperation in order to um, minimize outlays from companies and stuff like that. And then that started to become the norm, part-time working. Um, and it's all um, clouded in this notion of flexibility, this Thatcher thing, that the workforce needs to be flexible. And of course, when you start to talk about um, to workers about making their, their working life more flexible, for a lot of people that means, all right, so I can work when I want. I can take new hours and, and work around when it suits me. And then, of course, you have the, 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 uh, the initiatives get more and more um, abstract. So you start to outsource, outsource um, different, different services. And then, I mean, it used to be whatever local or national newspaper, every Thursday you would lift it and go to the job section, wouldn't you? 
and there'd be whole adverts, lists of jobs and that you could apply for if you had the, the qualifications or experience. Now you don't do that. You have to register with an agency. Employers don't employ directly. They only employ agency staff. Well, you might work for a year before you have a contract of employment that um, puts you on a par with the other workers. Yeah, you mentioned before about the mask slipping during the COVID crisis and the mask slipped to reveal the, the extent, although we knew about it, I suppose, you could argue the rest of society was turning a blind eye to, which is the emergence of that precarious uh, economy and the gig economy and the precariat, the, the, these people who have no contracts or zero hours contracts who, you know, the, the if and when contract, I'll phone you if and when I need you kind of thing. And, you know, it's, we knew it, there, were, there were millions of people um, on these kinds of contracts, but that's almost becoming the norm for so many workers in service and, other, and, and, and in other sectors. And 30 or 40 years ago, could you imagine would you have imagined, Mel, when you came into the trade union room, that that would be the case? No, and of course it's created a whole new um, um, lexicon of words, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you know, precarious employment, in-work poverty, underemployment. So a, a person can work but doesn't earn enough money to um, sustain a family. Um, people now work in two, uh, maybe three jobs. This is the kind of thing that used to laugh at American workers for having, geez, I mean, did you ever see what they have to do in America? They only get two weeks holidays a year and you, know, you have school teachers going into working bars at night and all that stuff. Now that's commonplace here. Yeah, the um, one of the consequences of that, of course, and an additional consequence is planned or not, is that's a, that's a kind of economy that's a lot harder to organize. That's an economy that's hard for trade unions to get into to secure members and to work for members. If you have a thousand members on one site and they all join the union, they've got one employer. Now you might have a thousand members in 400 different sites with 300 employers, some of which are outsourced or subcontracted employers. So it's, it's almost impossible in some circumstances, not impossible, but it, it just makes it so much more difficult for trade unions to organize. And of course, trade unions aren't ready and some are still unwilling actually to, to organize in precarious sectors. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are still trade unions that don't organize. Um, uh, agency workers so you know big factories there that only the, the unions only take membership from the core group of employees and mm. now we can't take you into membership because you're an agency worker you know without the understanding that well if you don't protect the rate for the job then you're not protecting even the core workers because it just drives down wages so um you know it, it's uh, apart from all of that capital you know has innovates and changes and you know the, the changes to work in the tax and trade unions are only part of a bigger uh, a bigger metamorphosis aren't they? Well yeah the last 30-40 years have seen massive changes not just to the our world of work not just to the the role of trade unions and the power of trade unions but to capital itself and the forces of production because because that's where this all that's that, that, that's where it all kind of hits the road is that the forces of production and what they produce and how they're producing and where they're producing so for this mass production that's that revolution in capitalism from the early part of the 20th century is still with us, of course, but it even it shifts and it shifts in the sense that it moves literally across the globe and it goes to areas of low pay and low tax. Um, but also it shifts in terms of what it builds in terms of its capacity, uh, you know, to, to produce a variety of goods cheaply in small batches, like economies of scope before economies of scale. That's where you get your pound shops full of shite stuff that costs a pound is because capital is able now to produce that. You see, I know you're interested in that topic, mm -hmm. massive changes to the advertising industry or the need inducement industry, as they call it, and the commodification of absolutely fucking everything. There's, you know, so if someone, something doesn't have a, a market value, well, then it has no value at all, is kind of the concept. 
Uh, I remember someone asking me once why we raised our kids with, with Irish and why we were Gaelic horse. Someone said, oh, that would be great for their CV, you know. And I said, well, that's not why we're fucking doing it. But the person couldn't understand why you would give your kids the gift of language you know, and being bilingual unless it had a market value, unless it improved their chances to, to sell themselves in the marketplace. And we've seen that recently with even the GAA, you know, in Ireland in terms of having to pay to watch games now and to pay an Australian billionaire to watch your local, to watch your county. Or, so um, that, that kind of commodification is central to modern capitalism. And knowledge, I suppose the biggest shift is that so-called knowledge economy. Um, you know, you've got an explosion of consultancies and think tanks. You've got, I think, the stats in America is about 2% of publishers control 88% of all book production in America. You've got an incredible intensity of ownership of, of the media, of, 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 train, of um, sorry, radio stations and regional newspapers and national newspapers. And perhaps the biggest shift is in universities themselves, which kind of, you know, the neoliberalization of colleges, they're now ancillary production units for corporate capital. They're not centers of learning anymore. They're absolutely fundamentally wedded to the market and churning out little neoliberals, as our good mate John Barry would say. Uh, but perhaps more <coughs> scary than anything is that, is massive monopolization. If we thought the monopolization of the last 30 years was bad, wait, wait till we see what we're gonna um, see happening in the next year or 18 months, you know? I think at the moment there's about 750 firms on the planet that control 80% of global capital. I mean, that's an incredible concentration of power and wealth um, in 750 CEOs, you know? Um, and that's, that's, that's a real concern, I suppose. But, <coughs> you know, the, the, the other, the big thing there, the big story there perhaps for us in terms of industrial trade unions is that shift of work mill to the East or the shift of it South if you're in America. Yeah, well, it, it started, I suppose, in the late 60s, early 70s, when um, Japan and Korea started to produce um, industrial goods and started to sell them in, in Western markets, and it's been exacerbated. Um, and, and, of course, the, the profits that capitalism has been generating have been fallen, you know, steadily since that period. Um, and we know that if um, they can't sustain the rate of profit, what's the first thing they attack? Will it attack labor? Um, and if you're a capitalist, it makes um, complete sense. Um, if you can pay uh, an Indian worker a um, dollar a day, when uh, the equivalent worker in America is $100 a day, well, why would you invest in productive capitalism in America? And of course, the other process that allows that to happen, as we spoke about last time, is the disappearance of, of regulation of capital, the disappearance of capital controls, for instance, uh, the formation of the European Economic Council and then the EU, which has as its foundational principles, the free movement of capital. And that's central to allowing capital free reign across the globe. And capital, it abides blocks, it abides tariffs, it abides boundaries. It wants the, the, the ability to move freely anywhere it can across the globe um, to increase its profits and to keep accumulating. Uh, so that's kind of the process of globalization that we've seen, the emergence of the North American Free Trade Association, the European Union, and these massive free trade deals, whether it's TPP or TTIP, which will probably be back on the table sooner rather than later, um, which create these massive free market zones where capital can kind of, you know, clear clear the way, father balak, as they say, and I'll clear the way in front of it. Clearing the way means no tariffs, yeah, it also means no environmental regulations, no trade unions in the way, no organized labor. That's what it means, and it, it, it increases its ability to, to exploit both labor and, and nature, you know. Um, but that's kind of that, 
But even during that period, it's funny, even during that period of globalization, there was a, there's a, there's an idea, particularly amongst Marxists, of course, of, you know, the, if you look back at Archandrati of waves and the boom and bust cycles of capitalism and the, the, the iron law of the rate of profit to fall, is it during that period from the 70s, right the way through the birth and the establishment of the neoliberal period, no, you, you saw um, the economy-wide return on invested capital come going down. Profits were reducing consistently over that period for capital. It couldn't restore and hasn't restored and will not be able to restore the kinds of profits it was making in that post-Second World War golden age of capitalism. And so we see a kind of a, a shift then, don't we, from... Um, from, you know, some would say from industrial production to other forms of profit making. We might might go there next, because one thing we haven't talked about is um, finance capital. But before we do, um, you know, what's the, in summary, Mel, what, what, what's the effects or what are key characteristics of, of that neoliberal offensive before we look at the last kind of bit of this finance capital? Well, there's, there's a few things that sum it up. Um, the, the, certainly the shift and the redistribution from the public sphere to the private sphere, um, redistribution and a shift in power away from labour towards capital, um, the complete undermining of, of public institutions and the undermining of democracy itself, whether it's in the workplace or in society, um, and the insidious development of the influence of the market in every aspect of our lives. The market is everywhere now. Um, it's on our computers every time we open up our laptops. Um, we're hit up the face with the market. Um, and an increase in debt, um, whether it's personal debt or whether it's private sector debt. And of course, in um, Western economies, the shift away from productive capitalism towards uh, the financialization of the economy. And all of that, of course, under a, a, a myth, a pretense, a myth of neoliberalism. And it's important to point it out isn't it and to destroy that myth that this was all about reducing the size of the state this is all about making the state more efficient if you like and moving out the way not to crowd out private sector investment and profits but of course the the, the small state is a myth all we've seen is not the state the state hasn't actually shrunk massively relative to gdp all that's happened is that the state has shifted away from providing for people towards providing for capital now we see the state and capital as embedded partners but actually it hasn't got out of the way. Its job, however, now is simply to make sure that profits are maintained. And you mentioned the last one of those characteristics, Mel, of, of neoliberalism was the financialization uh, of the economy. Yeah, um, so if you, if you can't make money um, producing stuff, making goods, the way we understand how capitalism works, and it's our, it's our uh, it's common sense understanding that you have to have people making things. You have to have hundreds of people in factories, and that's a good system because people have jobs. And if somebody who's providing good ideas and putting in money, they're entitled to their return as well. But of course, that hasn't happened um, because not only have you got um, um, other people pr producing uh, products more cheaply, we're now competing with China. China comes on in the, in, in the mid-90s, opens up its economy, and all of a sudden you have three quarters of a billion extra workers to compete with. And as you said earlier, you can't compete with that. So um, capitalism has to find a new way of keeping those rates of profit up. Yeah, and um, you know, it's one of the most remarkable developments, I suppose, isn't it, since the 1970s, is the expansion of, of uh, financial um, kind of operations and, and financial capitalism. And as you said, there's been a massive shift from, if you like, the 
growth rate of investing in what we traditionally would understand as capitalism in terms of manufacturing, delivery of goods and services towards what they term the fire, um, the fire industries, which is finance, insurance uh, and real estate. And so financialization is really the most important, perhaps, characteristic of the last 30, 40 years. I mean, it's characterized by a rapid growth of the circulation of capital compared to the production, as you said, although eventually the profits that come from financialization all must come from production anyway. But Cedric Durand, uh, I read him recently, he was, uh, he was the advisor to Melanchthon, he said that what we're seeing emerge is simply extended chains of indebtedness. That's all this is. It's a massive house of cards. Um, and of course, workers and communities are central to the financialization of the economy. So rather than, rather than like you and me or, or anyone we know benefiting from universalism and you know, universal public services, you're buying that service in the market and indebting yourself in order to buy that service. So that debt is both a means you know, to discipline you, the worker, because you're now in debt, so you're not going to go on strike, but also to redistribute your wealth upwards. I mean, it's a really, you know, that, that rentier capitalism has its fucking claws into us everywhere. It's really a parasitic process where capitalism just sucks the lifeblood out of us, out of our children, indeed out of the, out of the planet. Um, now, whether, of course, that shift to financialization is, is an escape hatch for capital that can't find profitable investment elsewhere is, is a debate we can have, you know, um, or simply it's a, it's a means for capital to keep, to keep consumer kind of demand buoyant so they can still keep producing, keep selling, whilst at the same time um, keeping our wages stagnating. And how do they do that? Well, we get into debt in order to maintain, to, to maintain that balance, you know. So, and that's, that's kind of why the financialization thing has happened, but it's... it's it's kind of, again, we witness a massive shift in power, Mel, and it's not just between capital and labor. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, it's nothing, it's nothing we should be surprised about because uh, Marx, Lenin, uh, even Keynes warned of it, but it's that, it's that shift, again, in the common sense notion that there's um, a, balance, a balance of forces in the labor market and includes finance in the form of banks um, um, and uh, uh, the the means of production, the entrepreneurs, and the the workers producing goods, and that there's a sort of a symbiosis between all three, that they're all interdependent, and what has happened over the, with the process of financialization is that the, the the power has shifted away, even from the workers. Certainly, it's part of union busting. It's part of that um, transformation of the of the um, the the workforce but also away from the entrepreneur, from the capitalist, the, the, the normal sort of idea that we have of somebody puts some money in uh, to productive capitalism to provide jobs towards um, the rentier, uh, the spiv, uh, the guy who makes a quick buck today rather than invest in the long term. Um, Keynes referred to it as the, euthani um, um, the euthanasia of the rentier. Um, <clears throat> I like the fact that Keynes was uh, was was, comment, was commending the you know, the guillotining of all rentier capitalists. Yeah, to bring that to bring that idea back. Yeah, but um, we're we're talking about it as a sort of a consequence of um, uh, the great slump in the 1970s and the emergence of neoliberalism. But of course, Keynes was saying that back in the 1930s, um, and it's all you know, it, it's it's all there. It's laid bare for us. It's there for us to see. Um, and if we choose not to see it, then that's willful ignorance on our part. Yeah, and there's a, there's a, there's a number of features of rentier capitalism, of course, that stand out. You, you mentioned Keynes, but of course, Marx's concept of fictitious capital is probably the most important one to remind ourselves of because um, we've seen significant changes to how we understand the, the, the workings of fictitious capital. 
There's also the other very, very modern concept of securitization, which we might get into, and also credit creation by private banks, which is another feature of neoliberalism, of course, is the, is the move away from control of public money by states towards the control of money creation by banks, which is a fundamental part of the story of the last 20, 30 years in terms of the issuing of, of loans as debt into an already indebted system. But that idea of Marx's fictitious capital, you know, I mean, fictitious capital is a brilliant concept simply because, you know, if you own a share in, or a bond or a, uh, in a company or in government debt or whatever, you know, it represents, it's called fictitious simply because it represents a claim over wealth that is yet to be produced. You're waiting for the workers to be exploited in the factories or wherever they're working in order for profits to be made. And you have a claim over that wealth. Um, you have title of ownership over that person's labor. Um, so the expansion of fictitious capital implies, therefore, growing kind of preemption of even more production in the future and even more profits. And as Duran said, I mentioned him earlier, you get this extension of these chains of indebtedness between, you know, between these new financial products that appear on the market. So instead of just having bonds or gilts or shares, you've got a diverse array of new financial products. Um, many of which are simply made up of other kinds of fictitious capital. And I think that's what you meant by the circuit, that, that circulation rather than production. But eventually, yeah. of course, all of that profit has to come from production somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I suppose the, the, um, the first time that we, we really see it is after the, the, the world slump and the shift. Um, whenever you have the, uh, the, the breaking the link with uh, the gold standard and the creation of, of fiat currencies very very quickly you see those currencies now being traded to the point that in 1973 uh, you had uh, currency trading which was only a couple of years after the the breaking of the link and a couple of years after that it's twice in um, the trade is it's twice the level of trade in, in real goods so it's it's twice as high as goods that are being traded on the stock market that's bad enough after a couple of years, but by the time it gets into the mid-90s, it's 70 times greater, and it's pure speculation. Um, to you know, Right up to modern times, it's hard to sort of get your head around the figures. It's all done now at the push of a button on um, computers. The amounts of um, money that are being traded at the click of a, of a button is it yeah, it's, it's absolutely not kind of wrong to, to characterize what's going on in currency trading as as casino capitalism and what they get up to in there. I mean, if a trader, as Soros did, remember back in the eight, late 80s, and early 90s, if you can ac accurately predict which currencies are going to rise or fall, you can reap massive profits without ever having to build a factory or, or employ anybody. Uh, and that's the kind of socially useless nature of much of modern capitalism. It's reckless, it's socially useless, and it's prone to collapse. My favorite yeah. course, and you know, I know it's my favorite, is is derivatives or futures markets. <laughs> the very idea that you can buy a product in the future at today's price. Now, I suppose it makes sense because if you buy a product in the future at today's price and in five years' time, if the price of that product is higher, well, then you're going to reap massive profits. Someone said once it was a, trying to explain to someone what a derivative was. And he said it was a bit like buying or selling a bet on a horse halfway through the race, which, of course, you can do now down the bookies. But before yeah. the crash, the trade in derivatives someone worked it out someone said it was one quadrillion us dollars and i wrote that down i remember going one zero zero i think it's 15 zeros and i was down in cork teaching political economy once and the bloke says how much is that um and, you know how do you quantify that that, that kind of gdp trade in derivatives in, in 2007 and someone worked out that it was equivalent to 10 times the total production of goods on the planet over its entire fucking history so the trade in that one year from this one financial product 
was 10 times the value of any flint axe or bow and arrow our ancestors made as they wandered out of Africa right the way through to the Industrial Revolution and beyond. Times that by 10 and you're getting to the kind of size of the figure of derivatives market. And of course, it was derivatives that helped bring the crash. Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the planet, said in the early noughties, when the derivatives market was really taking off, he said that derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction, carrying dangers that while now latent are potentially lethal. Um, and that's and that's where we are with uh, this level of deregulated, speculative and reckless capitalism, Mel. Yeah, I'm just. It's just occurred to me that um, maybe some of our listeners maybe wouldn't understand the term derivatives. What kind of uh, what kind of products are traded on the futures markets? Just to sort of make that more tangible for people. Well, I mean, it's amazing because every year new products come onto the futures market. I remember a couple of years ago, French wine came onto the futures market because you could you could buy a derivative in the future of the French wine harvest. Now, that's extremely risky when you consider climate breakdown. And you, when you consider the, you know, how good or bad the French harvest might be in a couple of years' time, you can go onto the derivatives market and buy wheat. You know, you can buy wheat derivatives. So you're buying things that don't yet exist. You're buying things that aren't even grown out of the ground. And if you've bought, like for instance, a wheat derivative in Ukraine pre-2015, and then civil war breaks out in Ukraine, well, you're going to get onto your local politician and says, here, what the fuck's going on in Ukraine? Get that sorted. I've invested billions in that wheat market. I need that wheat to be grown to come out of the ground to be harvested and be sold to me because I own it. So it has a massive impact on global, uh, on geopolitics across the globe, derivatives markets, because it's so risky. And um, they're even doing weather futures now. You can buy and sell bets on <laughs> the future of the weather. And with climate breakdown, there's huge risks involved in that. But again, because it's so risky, there's massive profits. There's nothing these fuckers won't do to try and make money, including kill the planet, of course. <coughs> I could see Frank Mitchell being a billionaire of the future then. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, the derivatives wasn't the only thing. and that was, You do um, realise, Mel, the people in England and America who listen to this podcast are going, who the fuck is Frank Mitchell? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, and your per- that is a, you and your fucking parochial references. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a, maybe the subject of another podcast, who is Frank Mitchell? <laughs> Um, but derivatives wasn't the the um, the the only element that that um, um, introduced that at very very high level of risk, um, and probably was, um, a lot of people were more familiar with um, the housing crash and um, after two thousand and eight that we thing that they call the the ninja mortgages. What does that mean? N i n j a. Well, yeah, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? They, that was a nickname that the mortgage issuers gave to this mortgage they were handing out to people. I think in the end, they handed out over 2 million of these mortgages in the United States. And it's, it means no income, no job or assets mortgage. When you tell that to people, they go, no, that couldn't possibly be allowed to happen. I mean, capitalism wouldn't be that stupid that it would hand out mortgages to people who they know can never pay that mortgage back. Um, and we know from one class action suit taken against Washington Mutual, who were throwing out these mortgages to anyone that wanted them, that there was a Mexican immigrant, I won't mention his name, I mentioned his first name, Soledad was his first name, and he was working for $9 an hour, and he, he got his hands on a $600,000 house. The monthly repayments for his mortgage made up about 96% of his monthly income. And all they did is falsify the documentation, said he was on 13000 a month rather than $1,400 a month. So it was easy done, but the reason why they could do that, of course, Mel, and the reason why they, they wanted to do is that because of deregulation, because of this neoliberal period, debt no longer sits on banks' books. So if you'd have come to me 30 years ago and wanted a mortgage, I'd have to get a letter from your employer, talk to people who knew you, make sure you're in full-time employment. 
I had to trust that you could pay it back because you were paying it back to me and I was representing the shareholders of the bank. With deregulation, I don't give a shit if you can pay it back. Why? Because I can sell on that mortgage to somebody else. The question you're going to ask is why would you sell on, why would someone buy a dodgy mortgage? And we used that word earlier on, securitization. And, and that's the kind of solution they came up with for these kind of dodgy mortgages. They thought, well, we'll securitize them by spreading the risk across buying up maybe, I don't know, let's get 10,000 of these mortgages. But let's make sure that there's, you know, 90%, 80%, 70% of the mortgages are good mortgages, and that will cover the losses on the bad mortgages. Uh, of course, once that kind of innovation was, was excellent for everybody, everyone started doing it. And those, not just mortgages, but credit cards and student loans were sliced up, repackaged and sold to hedge funds and to pension funds in the hope that the risk was then spread across all of these various innovative packages, you know. So rather than wait 25 years for a mortgage profit, you could make maybe half of what you'd make in 25 years, you could make it in a week if you knocked out enough of these mortgages, which is, of course, what people um, what people did. Yeah, I love the, uh, the, um, the GSAM Trust. Is a fancy name for a Goldman Sachs uh, uh, product, and it was just a collection of of um, eight thousand two hundred and seventy four mortgages. Just put them all in and, and tie them up in a bundle, um, and it's a, it's a combination of all of those things that you say: good mortgages, bad mortgages, student loan debt, all that sort of stuff. But sixty percent of them were no doc or low doc. That means no documentation or low documentation. And the loans were given AAA credit rating by the the um, the, the banks. Um, and the Pauls and Moody's, our two favourite friends. And the Pauls and Moody's, yeah. Um, and they, they, so you know, you wonder why the banks that are uh, whose sole uh, responsibility is to regulate banking gets into that game. Um, and of course, with deregulation, they're all in on it. They're all playing the game. And professionals who were involved in this. And knew what they were at, and they were calling it toxic crap. They also, um, they also called them. They also called these mortgage packages bags of shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and it's. I mean, that's well known now through popular culture. You know, if you've seen um, Margin Call the movie, um, or read the uh, Matt Taibbi book. What's it called again? Oh yeah, Griftopia by the Rolling Stones uh, yeah. writer Matt Taibbi. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, they, they, they sort of detail how these things were done. Um, and the, the, these people knew the risks that they were taking. Uh, and of course, what happened when it all came crashing down? Um, who paid for it? Well, they didn't pay for it. Because <laughs> after they were bailed out, I remember reading somewhere that Goldman Sachs paid nearly a hundred of, no, nearly a thousand of their employees bonuses of a million dollars immediately after the TARP, you know, the big American bailout. Some of the banks, there were stories of some of the banks hiring out five-star hotels in the Caribbean and taking all their top teams off for five or six weeks, waiting for the state to come in to save capitalism. Then they came back and went back to work. And of course, yeah. back to work doing what? Back to work doing exactly what they did before they, they went. No new regulations or very few introduced to stop it happening again. And so that's really the story, isn't it? That's, the, that's one of the stories of, 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 of neoliberalism is this massive um, increase in financial instability across the globe um, because of this decline in return on investment, it leads to some sort of financialization of capitalism to restore profits, obviously. Um, but this time, those restoration of profits is characterized rather by a, like a pursuit of profit from investment, as you said, in currencies, but also these new financial instruments. And that one you've talked about, the, the mortgage packages of like, or the debt packages or loan packages, were the, the little geezer sitting in that shiny building in the city of London or Milan or New York, wherever he is, it's called a CDO trader. 
collateralized debt obligation trader. And that was, he was trading in debt, as you said, a package of mortgage, credit card, corporate and student loan debt, buying it and selling it across the world, you know. Yeah, and is that is that all it does? Just well, you think that'd be bad enough? You think that you think that trading in debt would be, you know, and trading in dodgy debt and, and bags of shit and toxic crap would be bad enough? <laughs> but but then someone come up with a bright idea, and someone they obviously realise that some of this debt was dodgy. And if you're a little bit, if you're not convinced that your investments are secure, you might want to insure them. And that's that's what happened next: is that someone come up with this idea of a CD, I think it was a CDS, a, a credit default swap, um, which was an insurance policy on those very securities. So you could buy an insurance policy to cover some of the debt you bought. Because of deregulation, you could actually buy an insurance policy on someone else's debt without telling them. I mean, if you think about it, it's a bit like having an insurance policy on someone else's house and they don't know about it. And you're hoping their house burns down because you're going to get a payout. And by 2006, those insurance policies on the debt were eight times larger than the actual value of the bonds they covered. I mean, that's a kind of lunacy. I think AIG were heavily involved in that. You know, the Man United, uh, sponsor yeah. back in the day. Uh, well, that's fucking madness, isn't it? I mean, you know, <laughs> surely it can't get any worse than that. Oh man! Did they catch oh, themselves on at any time? <laughs> the, 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 the last thing they come up with, like, it's my favourite, is um, a thing called synthetic CDOs, synthetic collateralized debt obligation, and it was a financial package, financial assets that held nothing. There was nothing in it. It was a package of what they call derived debts. And what it really was, was that an investor who bought one of these synthetic CDOs would own a bet, really, that the mortgage holders wouldn't default. So basically you held a bet and you, you laid bets to see which of these mortgages would default or not. And of course, the thing you can do with all of these new financial products, whether it's a CDO, whether it's a credit default swap, whether it's a synthetic CDO, you can trade those financial products as well. So you don't hold on to them, you create them, you buy them, and then you sell them on. So this has gone on around the world in the early noughties up to 2005 and six. Um, and of course, eventually then the fucking house of cards just collapses. And uh, we know what happened next. What happened next But I mean, that, that, that is so history. bizarre that it doesn't make sense to me. Well, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. It doesn't make sense why we allow this to happen, why capitalism would, um, but if capitalism and its ultimate aim is simply to accumulate and to make profit, then it makes perfect sense. People think capitalism has some other kind of logic apart from just accumulation and profit. It doesn't. That's what it's there to do. But go, oh, this is terrible. This is corruption. It isn't corruption. A fucking nothing annoys me more than wankers have gone about corrupt capitalism. It is capitalism. That's what it does. That's what it's designed to do. <laughs> and there is no incorrupt yeah. capitalism. This is capitalism working extremely efficiently and well according to its own internal principles. There's no contradiction there in making money out of that, is it? Now, the fact that it destroys the world economy at least the deaths of potentially millions of people across the globe post-crash, that's just irrelevant. That's just an unfortunate kind of outplaying of, of this system, you know. Um, so if it's volatile and it's pr prone to collapse, then surely the answer is to um, uh, reproduce the regulation that prevented it happening for uh, 70 years? You, you might think that, and you might even think some people on the left and social democratic left would be pushing that massively, the idea that we have to regulate the system. But I would be of the opinion now that it's too late. You can't go back there. If you want to go back to that golden age of the 1950s and 60s of capital controls and regulation of foreign direct investment, as I said somewhere else recently, you're going to need a fucking pair of ruby slippers or a time machine. The social democratic experiment was of its time. It was historically contingent. It will not happen again. As so we've got to come up with other 
solutions uh, and other ways to uh, remove ourselves or remove this system from the planet. But you don't have to panic, Mel, because I was reading the Telegraph there recently, and um, <laughs> China's also facing a full bone. But the Belfast right? Telegraph or the London Telegraph? The London Telegraph, mate. I don't read right, the Belfast. Right. Don't read that racist shite. Um, China facing full blown banking crisis apparently, and then the FT had a headline in it. Uh, I think it was eight months ago or so, and it was um, it was a China's plan to tackle its bank's bad debt burden. It looks like subprime derivatives on steroids. China hopes to bundle together billions of dollars worth of non-performing loans and eventually sell them to global investors. So China's at the game too in terms of trying to get rid of its bad debt. So um, the bad lending and the bad debt and the casino capitalism didn't disappear. It just shifted to the Far East. And pre-COVID, back to February, if you can remember, February, the end of the last week of February was the beginning, it looked, of another financial crash, which was almost saved, if you like, by the COVID crisis, capitalism, because yeah. it might come out of this doing something else afterwards, you know, because we were on the yeah. verge of another, uh, of another financial collapse in February. Yeah, and that was the crash that we've been predicting for quite some time now. Well, when you say, um, we've, it, been, when you say we've been predicting it, we've been reading very clever people who've been predicting it. And we've, yeah, we've been, yeah. We just repeat what very clever yeah, people say. But look, Mel, yeah, last that's, words. That's what I mean. Last words. So you've got anything to say here? Because we're coming to an end, really. I don't want to go any longer. We've been on for 45 minutes, which is five minutes too long, according to our, our podcast um, advisors. Um, we've looked or tried to look at the characteristics of the neoliberal period in some way, whether it was the attacks on labor, whether it was the changes to the world of work, the introduction of you know human resources theory, but also and privatization, outsourcing, but also really important the the growth of the influence of finance capital and where that brought us in 2007 when we come back next time what we're going to look at mel well we'll look at whether this crisis was predictable or unpredictable um look at who was telling us about it who was warning us um and government responses um and the the onset of austerity uh, the last 10 or 12 years all right and we don't know um possibly comrade sean byers if he's out of prison might be back to join us next week. Uh, if they're looking bail money for him, we're not going to give him. So uh, he might be in there. Until yeah, next well, time. Slang foil. Slang foil. See us all again.